Welcome back to the OBG Med Student Podcast. I'm Dr. Tanya Wright, and today we're going to cover the educational topic number 31, fetal growth abnormalities. If you wanted to follow along with this topic, you can do so by going to www.apgo.org backslash students. Today we have a familiar guest. This is Dr. Jamie Maines. Dr. Jamie Maines is an MFM physician who specializes in fetal growth abnormalities. And so she's our expert today. We will cover our case. We will ask her some questions. So with that, let's get started. All right. So the case is a 20-year-old G2P1 African-American woman who was referred to you from her family physician for an obstetrics consultation. She's 35 weeks and zero days pregnant based on her LMP and her LMP was based on regular menstrual cycles. At her last prenatal visit, her fundal height measured 30 centimeters. In taking her history about her prior delivery, she tells you that she delivered three weeks before her due date, but that her baby was small, only weighing 2,400 grams. She does not report any other pregnancy complications. She does smoke two packs of cigarettes a day and has gained eight pounds during the entire pregnancy. Her blood pressure today is 110 over 70. Her fundal height is again 30 centimeters. Fetal heart tones are present. You do obtain a obstetric ultrasound for measuring of growth, um, which does look at several uh, biometric parameters, including the BPD, the head circumference, the abdominal circumference, the femur length, and the humerus length. And based on these measurements, it does give you an estimated fetal weight of 1,700 grams plus or minus 308, which is less than the 10th percentile. How do you interpret this ultrasound result, Dr. Maines? So in looking at the ultrasound findings, it's important to distinguish between a normal-sized baby, a small baby, or a very large baby. And in talking about baby, we're actually talking about fetus. So when you look at fetal growth, we really don't know how much babies weigh when they're inside the uterus. We can estimate that. And the way we estimate that is by measuring the head circumference, we measure the abdominal circumference, we measure the femur length, and then we put these all together into an equation that will calculate what we believe to be the estimated fetal weight. When we look at the estimated fetal weight, it's based on a bell curve. So you're going to have the 10th percentile and the 90th percentile marked off. Fetuses who fall below the 10th percentile for their estimated fetal weight based on their gestational age are what we used to consider intrauterine growth restricted, but now refer to as fetal growth restricted. When the babies look large on ultrasound, that's when we start to think about things like macrosomia. And so that's when we have an estimated fetal weight that falls somewhere between 4,000 and 4,500 grams. Now, after the baby is born, we can actually put the baby on a scale and we can see what they actually weigh. When a baby is considered large for gestational age, it is when their birth weight is above the 90th percentile for the age at which they were born. A small for gestational age baby is going to be one whose actual birth weight is below the 10th percentile based on the age at which they were born. This is not to be confused with babies that are low birth weight And these are the ones that fall below 2,500 grams, which her first baby would qualify for. So based on the findings of this ultrasound, where we have an estimated fetal weight of about 1,700 grams, which is defined as less than the 10th percentile for her gestational age, this baby or fetus would be qualified as fetal growth restricted. 
So what would you tell her about the possible ideologies of the fetal growth restriction? So fetal growth restriction is thought to occur because of potentially three different factors, and they actually can be factors that are present all at one time. There are maternal factors, there are fetal factors, and there are placental factors. Fetal growth restriction is the descriptive term that we use when we see a fetus who has not grown to what we would expect it to be, and then we try to figure out why this could potentially have happened. So the common maternal factors that can cause fetal growth restriction lead to maternal conditions that you think would affect blood vessels. So this would be hypertension, chronic renal disease, chronic diabetes that has a vascular component, or any other type of vascular or autoimmune disease. These conditions can all affect the blood flow to the placenta, which can then affect growth of the fetus. In addition, some substances such as tobacco, alcohol, and cocaine can also affect fetal growth because of the way they affect blood vessels in the placenta. There are also some infections that mothers can get, viral infections, protozoal infections, and while rare when mothers get these, they can pass to the fetus and can cause fetal growth restriction. And similarly, there are certain teratogens that a mother could be exposed to during her pregnancy that could lead to fetal growth restriction. In our specific patient, risk factors on the maternal side include her smoking two packs of cigarettes per day, in addition to the fact that she had a prior newborn that was also affected by growth restriction, which tends to repeat itself in future pregnancies, likely due to some type of maternal vascular problem. The other causes of fetal growth restriction include fetal factors. While we look at babies in utero, we try to figure out whether or not they're large, small, or normal. However, what we can't tell is if small babies are small just because they're going to be small, or if small babies are small because it is a pathologic problem. So the majority of fetuses that we say are small are going to be constitutionally small, meaning that they're not ever going to be six feet tall adults. They don't have six feet tall parents. They're just going to be small. The other side is the ones that actually have a pathologic cause for this, and this can include genetic or structural abnormalities, such as aneuploidy, or multifetal gestation. The more fetuses you put in one uterus that have to share placentas and share blood flow, the smaller you would expect each baby to be. There are then placental factors, which tend to be seen as kind of the most important of the factors causing growth restriction. Any Thing causing a primary placental disease, which is very rare, such as choreangiomas or mosaicism, or having tumors inside the placenta that are going to suck up a lot of the blood flow from the placenta, can steal blood from the baby and potentially cause growth restriction in the fetus. This would also occur if the placenta were to implant over an area that was a fibroid uterus where a mother had significant fibroids. The other would be abnormal placentation, including previas, where the placenta then implants over the cervix when it doesn't get a great blood supply and has to delve into the uterine muscle more deeply. This can also lead to abnormal, abnormal placentation, which then can lead to abnormal blood flow to the fetus, causing fetal growth restriction. Excellent. So this patient wants to know why specifically um, this growth restriction was not detected earlier. What are the methods to screen and diagnose fetal growth disorders? 
So unfortunately, there's not a good way of saying this is definitely a patient who's going to have a baby that is fetal growth restricted. So what we have to rely on are the patient's medical history and her obstetrical history. We know that women who have had a prior obstetrical history of a growth-restricted fetus are at higher risk of having an additional pregnancy of a growth-restricted fetus. We also look for, again, medical problems that the mother may have, such as hypertensive disorders of pregnancy or compromised kidneys, which would compromise renal blood flow and then placental blood flow. The other thing we can do is look at the fetus during the anatomic survey, which is typically done between 18 and 20 weeks of gestation. And during that survey, we're looking to see if there are any fetal anomalies that are present, any placental findings that would be considered abnormal. And then we look at uterine size, and we do that in a very indirect way with fundal height measurements during each of the obstetrical visits. So typically we will say by about 20 weeks of gestation, a woman's fundal height should be about at the level of the umbilicus. And then for every week after, the uterus should grow one centimeter and should be measured from the pubic symphysis to the top of the fundus and should correlate with the gestational age within a realm of about two weeks. However, this is very inaccurate because of the way maternal body habitus or the way she's carrying her baby, this is very inaccurate. So then we have ultrasound, and the ultrasound is the gold standard to assess the fetal weight. And as I had said previously, we don't do a really great job at this because we can't actually feel the baby or put the baby on a scale. So we are looking at different parts of the fetal um, biometry, which includes, again, the bipedal diameter and the head circumference, as well as the femur length and the abdominal circumference. More recently, we know that we can try to figure out whether a baby is growth restricted because of a pathologic reason or just constitutionally small by the addition of umbilical artery dopplers. Umbilical artery dopplers are telling us what the um, blood flow to the fetus and from the fetus is like, and this can help us predict the fetuses that are at increased risk of poor outcome because of potentially a pathologic cause. So what would you tell this patient about the consequences or the potential consequences of a fetal growth-restricted baby? So fetal growth-restricted pregnancies are at increased risk of perinatal morbidity and mortality. The risk of stillbirth is increased in fetuses that are growth-restricted and is usually dependent upon gestational age and what the primary etiology for this is. Again, if this is a constitutionally small fetus, there would be no reason why the, the stillbirth rate would be increased because this baby should not have any pathologic reason behind being small. However, since we don't always know that that is the case, we assume that all growth-restricted babies are going to have some reason why they're small and that that reason is pathologic. And so we counsel our patients about the increased risk of stillbirth. In addition, these tiny babies tend to not tolerate the labor process or the delivery process very well. And this likely has to do with the fact that their placenta is not functioning appropriately and giving them the adequate amount of blood supply. So during labor, you can see an increased risk of fetal heart rate abnormalities, which we will look at during labor with our, our fetal monitoring. Because of the increased rate of fetal heart rate abnormalities, there's an increased rate of cesarean deliveries and then low APGAR scores and core blood acidemia, which all go along with the fetal heart rate abnormalities. In the newborn period, these tiny babies have to adapt to life outside of the uterus, and sometimes when you're tiny, it's not that easy to do that. In the newborn period, these babies are at increased risk for having polycythemia, hyperbilirubinemia, hypoglycemia, hypothermia, and apneic episodes. 
And for the long term, there are now studies looking at what does growth restriction do to a baby when the baby is now 5 or 10 or 15. And this is really largely dependent on why the growth restriction was present and at what age the baby was delivered. However, we know that there is a lifelong increased risk of cardiovascular disorders in fetuses who were growth restricted during their lifetime. Got it. So how would you go about managing this particular patient? So once we suspect fetal growth restriction, we then tell the patients that they are at increased risk for morbidity and mortality of their fetus. And so we recommend that they do serial measurements of the fetus every three to four weeks to monitor fetal growth. We also recommend that antenatal testing be initiated, and typically that is done with twice-weekly non-stress tests or biophysical profiles, which will look at the fetus in short term, but also looking at the fluid level around the fetus, which will then tell us how the placenta is functioning. And then we base our timing of delivery on the results of how the the fetus is growing, what the umbilical artery dopplers are doing, what the gestational age is, and how the antenatal testing is going. And depending on those factors, we may recommend earlier delivery to prevent adverse outcomes. Excellent. Once again, Dr. Mays, thank you so very much for this comprehensive review on fetal growth abnormalities. Um, We hope to have you back again in the future. Thank you.